0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody, it is (laughs) February the 8th, 2022, Uh, as always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States in California. Um, Regular viewers of the show know that I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. I'm very excited that on his rough and rowdy ways world tour, I managed to get tickets next month um, for a concert he's doing in New Orleans at the Sanger Theater, a place full of memories, uh, a classic old New Orleans Theater. It's appropriate, of course, to see him in New Orleans because in his wonderful autobiography, Chronicles, the middle part of the book is about um, New Orleans, the making of an album. In uh, 1989, he did that. Uh, the new album, uh, Rough and Rowdy Ways, has a magnificent final song, Murder Most Foul. It's the last song in the album. It's probably the last song he'll ever write, um, which is appropriate. Um, and it is about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, it begins, uh, "'Twas a dark day in Dallas, November 63, a day that will live on in infamy." It's a wonderful song, perhaps the greatest song he ever wrote. Um, it's about, of course, that memory that most Americans, particularly Americans living at the time, um, Will always have of him riding in his car and being uh, shot in Dealey Plaza um, in Dallas. Uh, we're all, in a sense, I guess, America in general is trapped in this memory. Um, uh, the car is part—the uh, car that he was driving—and is even part of a museum. Uh, Kennedy is in that museum, uh, and I'm thrilled that. Um, My guest today, Colette Brooks, has a new series of essays, Trapped in the Present Tense, Meditations on American Memory. It's not just about the Kennedy assassination, but in a sense, the the assassination and our memories, or perhaps lack of memories of that, is a kind of exhibit A in the book. Colette is joining us from Brooklyn in New York. She teaches at the New School. She's one of America's foremost essayists. She writes about perhaps, maybe not so much American memory, but American amnesia. Uh, Welcome, Colette. Uh, This this assassination, uh, your book is full of references to it and, and photos. What is it about the assassination? that in your view is so symbolic and important and uh, attracts your attention as well as, of course, the great Bob Dylan.
1: Well, uh, Bob Dylan also wrote a song about someone else that I deal with, John Leslie Harden, later in the book. But uh, the assassination is a totemic experience in American life, certainly post-war American life. Uh, It was one of the first, possibly the first event that every single person post-war was thinking about and watching television about. Uh, There were only three networks at the time. They were all locked into the coverage of this, the assassination and the subsequent three days, including the murder of assassin Lee Harvey Oswald on
0: live. And it was Walter Cronkite, of course, who you note in the book um, was the, the voice of the media, Uh, Lee Harvey, uh, sorry, Lee Harvey Oswald, um, the assassin or the supposed assassin of JFK. Looking at his picture now, for people listening, you won't see the picture. Oswald Law looks um, chillingly contemporary, doesn't he? Uh, Oh, absolutely.
1: uh, And he was only Lee Oswald at that time. He became mythic a bit later on and now he is Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, So, I I focused on this event because I had started the book with the Charles Whitman mass uh, shooting from the tower of the University of Texas in 1966. And then I was thinking, in my uh, thinking about the book, I was thinking, what was the young Charles Whitman exposed to shortly before he uh, went up to the tower and started shooting? And I realized that he probably was watching about the Kennedy assassination three years earlier, as everyone else in America who had a TV was. So there was that link. And, of course, the assassination was the first uh, episode of uh, totally disruptive public violence that everybody was watching because it was the first one that was basically on TV. It, it
0: got captured on film, uh, the, the the famous Zack Ruder film uh, by... Uh a Ukrainian-born American clothing manufacturer who happened to be there with a camera. Um, there's some wonderful lines in the Dylan song. Uh, Zapruder's film, I've seen that before. Seen it 33 times, maybe more. It's violent, deceitful, it's cruel, and it's mean, ugliest thing that you have ever seen. Everybody watched that film, didn't they, um, Colette? it yeah, sure, that was a new not- kind of experience of, of watching history unfold.
1: Absolutely, but they didn't see it simultaneously because in those days you didn't have instantaneous transmission of, say, something you're shooting on your phone. It had to be go to a lab and be developed, very old school. And so they didn't even know it was on it for several hours most of that day. Uh, but it was the first, I think, he was another shooter and the first in a line, a long line of people who now shoot events public events with their camera you know their phones and uh it's unimaginable now that one couldn't do that in the 60s that there was no cell phone no mobile phone no You,
0: you say you begin the book with charles whitman another kind of shooter the texas tower sniper the book is full of violence of mass murder um and the shooting of photography the shooting of video the shooting of people. Do we need to invent some new language to distinguish between them, or is shooting a useful word, Colin?
1: I think it's a very useful uh, word, verb. I think because in in s, I mean, photography initially was considered a kind of transgression, a violation of one's soul. If you took their picture, you stole something from them. So there's that interesting kind of nuance baked into uh, the idea of photography from the nineteenth century. And now nothing is really what's private anymore. What's off bounds.
0: So nothing, of course, the political power of, of, of photography is particularly strong. Um, we had Wendy Lauer on the show last year, the historian of the Holocaust. She wrote a book called The Ravine built around this appalling photograph of the murder of a mother and a child by um, Ukrainian uh, Nazi troops. Um You write about the power of photography, uh, Colette, and yet you're a writer. What does a writer bring to bringing photography to life?
1: Uh, That's interesting. I've always been a camera nut myself. From early childhood, I had my Brownie and then my Instamatic. So I've always taken pictures. Uh, In the last part of the book, which is called Snapshots, I recreate a retro photo album and people used to have photo albums. They used to put pictures in uh, these catalogs and put captions underneath them. Um, they don't do that anymore, basically. But I create recreate that in the last part of the book. And I just take various images on the left-facing page and my text on the right. And I realized as you move through that section, uh, and spoiler alert, I'm not going to reveal the ending, but there are a number of photographs at the
0: ending that... Acquired. You revealed your beginning, though. I mean, beginnings are probably more of a secret than endings, aren't they, Killer?
1: Well, I think if you have the context, uh, when I'm talking about the, the ending of this section, there are photographs in there, home photographs, you know, snapshots, That have acquired resonance for the reader, I hope, because they will have read about the circumstances of those pictures unknowingly, you know, not knowing uh, earlier. So when they get to that picture, something snaps and they think, you know, aha, or my God, or I remember that person was written about earlier in the book. And there's kind of richness to uh, that context.
0: You do Uh, a better job in a sense than... The novelist. I know you're strictly a non-fictional writer, but non-fictional writers are much better at building stories than fiction writers, aren't they?
1: Well, it depends on the. You right. have
0: more. You have more resources, shall we say?
1: Well, uh, I. This is a book I call creative nonfiction, and I've had endless, uh, exhausting conversations with people trying to under you know make them understand what that means. Why is it different than regular nonfiction? And in creative nonfiction, and certainly in this book, I have a narrative voice that's very particular. I would never use it in an expository essay about something. And I have uh, access, I I include details and things that create a world. And a regular mainstream nonfiction piece, I, I would not be able to do that in... An expository nonfiction piece because they would consider, they, their editors, whatever, would consider that information irrelevant. To me, that's what it's all about. The quirky, idiosyncratic detail, my perception, what I see in the world that I convey on the page. Also, this kind of nonfiction has, dare I say it, literary power. The use of language is uh, foremost, and I'm very careful with my language, I am very sparse. I hate overwriting. Uh, I would never be able to write a 200-page tome about something. Uh, so there are a lot of their skills involved in this kind of lyrical or literary or creative nonfiction that fiction writers need. So
0: that's your, what... uh, People will be familiar with your last book, Lost in Wonder, Imagining Science and Other Mysteries, the, this new book trapped in the present tense, Meditations on American Memory, as you say, is... Um, uh, creative nonfiction. Reading it, I I couldn't help uh, thinking of um, the great uh, German writer uh, uh, W.G. Sebald. His use of combining photography and various narrative voices is extremely popular. I assume you're a fan of Sebald. Are there other figures who you think have pioneered this kind of creative nonfiction who have influenced you?
1: Well, first of all, there's a note about Sebald. My first book, which was called In the City, Random Acts of Awareness, had no photographs in it at all. And it was published by Norton. And my editor at Norton said, you know, this is a lot like Sebald. And I said, oh, that's great. But I hadn't read Sebald at that point. So I went off and I read it and I realized that she was probably referring to this sort of Lenore-like meandering wandering narrative uh, persona in that piece. Uh, so I think I had affinities with Sebald uh, and especially the meandering wandering part, which I love. I love to wander in a book. I love to take the reader in different places. And if you like wandering, you're going to like that kind of writing. If you don't like it, it's going to exasperate you. And I've, I've had some exasperated readers as well as readers who thought that it was kind of mesmerizing to be taken to places that surprised them. Uh, I also say that I actually am... Fiction actually influences me more than uh, nonfiction, because there isn't a lot of this kind of nonfiction, certainly not the kind that I'm writing uh, around. Uh, I'm, re- I'm reading, rereading the works of Don DeLillo, for instance, or at least... Yeah. A-
0: I love. And Delilah is certainly fascinated with violence and particularly uh, political violence. Um, is there a particular book of Delilahs that you think captures what you're writing about in um, being trapped in the present tense? Perhaps White Noise or is, what was it, Mao too? Well, I mean, white Noise. Happen.
1: White Noise is my favorite. Uh, I did read part of Libra which is his, uh, of the Harvey Oswald. And I thought that was really interesting. I love his subjects. uh, And I love his attentiveness to uh, the prickly sort of detritus of American culture. And he was, you know, as he is ahead of his time. That was 30, 40 years ago when some of those books were written. And they're just as timely today. But I also love the works of, say, another Austrian writer, uh, uh, Peter Hanke. Yeah. Very terse, very simple kind of narrative line, uh, very sparse and I think very evocative. I really love books that allow the reader to uh, enter the space, that they're not being told what to think or told about something. Here's everything you do.
0: But but, 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 um, while you say that, uh, Colette, you are trying to educate your reader there there are messages in this book uh maybe the the subtitle should be meditations on the end of american memory or meditations on american amnesia because it's a book about forgetting as much as memory isn't it
1: that that's absolutely right which um what i always used to tell my students i no longer teach the new school uh, but when i did I used to tell my nonfiction students interested in this form of nonfiction, literary nonfiction or creative nonfiction, said you need to bring something to the work, to the table that isn't anything a reader can find on Wikipedia because all the information is out there. All of the factual material is out there. What you need to bring, what I try to bring is a sensibility at play because that's unique. The way that we all see the work, some of us are able to of us aren't, and I go to books to uh, enter other people's minds, so to speak. So there's a lot that can be in this kind of nonfiction, and I attempt to make it as uh, powerful as possible as a literary experience. And I will say one other thing about the idea of the present tense. Uh, I actually, several, several of the set pieces are uh, unfold in the present tense. Uh, including the Charles Whitman sniper incident. And I find it really interesting. It It introduces a certain kind of tension and suspense to the reading experience, even if you know how it ends. Everybody knows how that event ends, everyone who knows about it. But it, there's still something suspenseful by in going moment by moment through an event. Uh, so I'm playing with present tense in a couple of different ways.
0: Let's talk uh, historically though, uh, before I want to take a break after this, but, um, let's talk about the Kennedy assassination. Um, Dylan in, um, Dylan, as he always does in his, uh, song, um, murder most foul somehow captures the, the tragic quality of it. Don't worry. He, he writes or sings, don't worry, Mr. President helps on the way your brothers are coming. There'll be hell to pay. Brothers? What brothers? What's this about hell? Tell them we're waiting. Keep coming. We'll get them as well. Love Field is where his plane touched down, but it never did get back off the ground. Was a hard act to follow, second to none. It, it seems to me, and it's always easy to over-analyse Dylan's songs, that for him, this was the beginning of the end. This is when everything really got broken in America. Do you think there's some truth to that? I certainly
1: think the early 60s, there was a lot of breaking going on. Um, I am mindful of the fact that both Dylan and I are of an age, he's older, that uh, this probably looms larger in our collective uh, consciousness than for younger people. But it was was shocking, absolutely. The 60s, shocking public violence, demonstrations, a war going on, racial unrest. It was just a, a cauldron.
0: Sounds like today, Colette.
1: Rachel unrest, wars,
0: public public disturbances, crisis of the political system. We're talking with uh, Colette Brooks, wonderful new uh, set of essays she's just come out with, Trapped in the Present Tense, Meditations on American Memory. We're going to take a short break, Colette, and after the break I want to talk specifically about the role of violence, the history of violence in America, because that seems to be the if, if there is a central theme in your book, as well as memory and forgetting, it's about America and violence, what distinguishes it from the rest of the world. So hold tight, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds with Colette Brooke, the author of Trapped in the Present Tense. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other you can watch these shows live, uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but Lit Hub is, and on their Lit Hub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube YouTube page so whatever your preference whatever your taste whether it's video or audio or text there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show now back to Keenan. we're back with colette brooks the author of trapped in the present tense um uh, a wonderful uh, new book of essays about um, american memory and forget it and forgetfulness Um, uh, Colette, um, yesterday I had an American businessman, Larry Miller, on the show, a very prominent African-American entrepreneur, corporate leader, very distinguished in his own right. Uh, On his journey from the streets to the boardroom, he talked to me about a murder he committed when he was a young man. It was a secret. He's written, though, more about this. It's no longer a secret seemed to me that he was trying to forget that violence without a great deal of success. Your interest also, it seems to be in America, is in violence. In your book, you write about just not just the JFK assassination. You, you write about Sandy Hook. Uh, you've got a section on Nancy Lanza, the mother of the Sandy Hook mass murderer. What is it about violence in America that both intrigues, troubles you, and why is it that America seems to have Almost monopolized history of violence amongst modern nations
1: well, I was I started the book years ago because I wanted to write about American violence. Why is this country so violent? And as I kind of thought about this shooter section, which is about active shooters and such, I realized it's in the it's embedded not only in the culture, nineteenth century cowboys, gunslingers. there's a section on. John Wesley Hardin, another Dylan uh, uh, song subject, uh, who killed 40 men, give or take, and what, more than Jesse James, more than all of the rest of them, and lived a very long life. He married. He had a mother who was kind of a intrusive mother-in-law. He had sons. So he was pretty much normally situated in American life, except that he killed a lot of people and he finally got caught and served 17 years for it and then was pardoned and a year later got shot in the back by someone. Uh, so he got shot. That's how he died. So it it goes way back. It's in the language. It's language like son of a gun, straight shooter, keep your powder dry. There's a whole section where I kind of riff off of the language Of violence, and particularly gun violence. And then I was thinking there's something else that bothered me personally, which is the militarization of American life. Uh, And now we've got young men mostly, or middle aged men running around in camo, uh, pretending to be, you know, militaristic. Um, Most of them, some of them haven't served, but there's something about the violence, the, the fact that we have the third largest military in the world the militarization, almost if fetish, fetish, fetishizing that, that really interested me. And it's mostly male, not exclusively, but mostly male. And recently I was thinking, okay, this is a complex thing. You can talk about toxic masculinity. You can talk about all sorts of things, but maybe it's simple. People who have a gun in their hands, I think, feel powerful in a way that perhaps they don't feel powerful in the rest of their lives.
0: Do you think uh, people with a gun in their hand feel more powerful than people with a camera or a pen in their hand?
1: Yes, I do. Because they know that what they've got is a lethal uh, weapon. And it's much... Uh, and with writing or, you know, cameras and such are not immediately lethal, although they've proved... Are to be you... Uh, uh,
0: uh, Colette, are you uh, perhaps rationalizing this a little bit too much. You write about uh, the Sandy Hook shooting, the mass murder there, and about the mother uh, of, of the mass shooter, Nancy Lanza. Uh, the boy Lanza was kind of insane, wasn't he? I mean, these people aren't thinking through what they're doing. Well, he I'm
1: actually talking about him when I talk about guys running around with guns. I'm talking about people who live next door to us who every so often put the camo on and go out and uh, brandish their weapons. Uh, he was mentally ill. And the reason I wrote about Nancy Lanza was I think women's stories are undertold. And I don't want to contribute to that. I was fascinated by her. What do you? She was relatively privileged, not rich, but privileged. But she couldn't help him. And the social services... Uh, we're basically non-existent. We do not do a good job of dealing with the mentally ill in this country. We kind of warehouse them or throw them out in the streets. Uh, Adam Lanza was mentally ill. She was a desperate mother who loved this damaged child and tried to help him until the last, her last dying moment. That's what interested me. It was such a complex story, much more complex than just he got a gun and he went and he, he killed these kids in a horrific act Uh, is complicated and I think it's
0: complicated, but there have to be political fixes. We've done a lot of shows about violence in America. We had a show about the NRA and its political power. seems to be perhaps the NRA is in more political trouble at the moment. Um, Is there a political fix to this violence, Colette? Can we actually get beyond it? Can we forget? this history of violence in America? Can America Um, reinvent itself? uh,
1: I certainly hope so. But this country was born in blood, basically, uh, and all sorts of different kinds. And there is uh, an attachment to weaponry that is so pervasive. Although, again, mostly male. There are some women who go and shoot, but they always have handguns. They don't have rifles. They don't have scopes and stuff. So there aren't they aren't so public. So I think a lot of it also has to do with masculinity and what we think of what that's evolving into. Uh, so the social structures, the gendered structures, all of this stuff is I hope going to change, but it's going to require, I think, generations. And I don't think of passing a law is going to do much. Uh, we really need to get this out of our heads and until this attraction to the means of violence, which mostly right now are guns, until that is not as uh, seductive as it currently is, uh, very little will change. I am not a total optimist on that front. Uh,
0: Colette, how much of this has been, if you like, medicalized? Yesterday I had uh, an American writer, John Abramson, a doctor on the show, talking about the crisis of big pharma, and we had a discussion about how young men in particular are attracted to a lot of mythology about vaccines and a cult of their own body. Has the cult of violence somehow been reinvented into the cult of the body in early 21st century America, particularly around the Internet and the fact that now everyone is a zapruter, everyone has their own camera and everyone can broadcast anything they like immediately to everybody else?
1: Oh, that, that's interesting. I think that certainly the ubiquity of social media and the ability for everybody to have to be on stage. I mean, Andy Warhol's 15 minutes seems quaint now because everybody's got their time <clears throat> online and there's a community. I, and I've called it in other contexts an exteriority, a kind of public uh, pre- pre- performative aspects of this that are it's new. It's new. It's Usually in the, bat, in the uh, bad old days when someone went up to a tower and shot, that was a performative public act of shocking violence. But there weren't a lot of other people who were likely to do that. Uh, now you can be uh, performative in a way you don't need to shoot a gun at someone, but you can be uh, bullying online. You can say toxic things to people. You can have a kind of anonymity that protects you or cloaks you. And you can do whatever the heck you want. I also, there's a section in this book, which is about uh, soldiers. And uh, one of those sections is about the atrocity that Bradley, then Bradley, now Chelsea Manning as an army analyst uh, uncovered, uh, Apache helicopter crew in Baghdad, uh, shooting a bunch of, turns out, Reuters cameramen and others in a very famous uh, incident that was photographed because these uh, helicopters all have live camera feeds and then put away in the archives. And Manning came across it when he was in Iraq. He And I'm using the historically, uh, I'm, I'm preserving the integrity of the historical timeline when I call him he. He saw it and he was appalled. And he thought, I need to get the public, I need to get this out there. And eventually he sent it to WikiLeaks, which was not a prominent uh, venue at that time. WikiLeaks became uh, famous overnight when it compiled a 17 minute uh, set of clips from this footage called Collateral Murder and premiered it at the national in in Washington, D.C. Uh, And the rest is history on that front. But I was thinking about those.
0: Well, nothing is ever really the rest is history, according to you, Colette. Everything is in the present tense. We had um, uh, we had a, a wonderful environmental kind of archaeologist, Bathsheba Demuth, on the show. I, I'm not sure if you know, if you're familiar with her work. She's written a wonderful book about the environmental history of the Bering Strait and the native peoples of the Bering Strait. As I said, sort of digging them up because they don't really exist anymore. In a few thousand years, when someone writes about America, digging it up like DeMuth has dug up the Bering Straits, what are we going to remember?
1: Well, I think we'll find some styrofoam coffee cups.
0: Uh, (laughs) We certainly will. What else? Bullets? um, Mass murders?
1: Well, I think uh, warfare is going to change dramatically. And it's going to be probably more horrific and more at a distance than it is now. So that men or women on battlefields will seem kind of quaint and old school. Uh, That's uh, so maybe our drone footage will remain.
0: So we'll all be shooters behind our computers.
1: Well, we already are. In fact, the, the when I was writing about that Iraqi Apache incident, I was thinking those young pilots in that helicopter, you know, a, a mile above the people they were shooting and killing, had uh, it was like a video game at that distance. And they had all played shooter video games. And there isn't a direct immediate correlation, of course, but you just have to wonder. It gets to be kind of a challenge. It's sort of fun. There's someone popping out of a building. You shoot and you get him or you don't. And there is on the... Uh, the transcript of that event has some, uh, some of the, one of those pilots or two in the, in the uh, helicopter saying, um, you know, I missed my moment. And then it was like whack-a-mole to them. Whereas the guys on the ground who picked up the body shortly thereafter commented on the smell this toxic mix mix of human body parts and munitions.
0: And eventually I think that people will invent technology, digital technology that will enable us to smell the battlefield as well. Colette Brooks, uh, author of Trapped in the Present Tense. We began with Dylan, so let's end with him. As I said, he has this remarkable song, Everything is Broken from his 1989 album that he made in New Orleans, Oh Mercy. it seems as if everything in America is indeed broken. I think your work contributes to this broken healthcare system, broken political system, broken media, broken everything, broken individuals in our age of anxiety. Is everything broken, Colette, in America in February 2022? Now, uh,
1: at the moment, I think so. Um, I have sometimes used a, a quote from Chekhov that about at least writing the about how you create a visual effect in 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 short story yeah. it says, uh, don't show me the, don't tell me the moon is shining. Show me the glint, the light on the glint of broken glass. And I liken that of course, to my, I do in work. I try don't to you have to show
0: things. though the, the, the mirror breaking, the glass breaking, isn't that the most important thing? Not the, not the glass glinting, but the.
1: That it's there. It's there. And we, uh, we'll walk over it all over again if we don't learn something from our our history if we don't develop some kind of awareness some kind of memory uh and it, but it's an uphill battle as they say to use another military locution. yeah
0: it certainly is i don't know there must be a more extreme uh, descri- uh a series of words to describe an uphill battle it seems an impossible it's 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 sisyphean i think it, trying to make Americans remember, but Colette Brooks is trying a wonderful collection of, of essays, important. The American Seaboard. You'll probably hate me for saying that, but uh, I'm going to say it anyway, by Colette Brooks, trapped in the present tense meditations on American memory. It's just out Colette. Congratulations on the book. Um, you're talking to me from Brooklyn in early February, 2022. What else should people be? I've already said people need to listen, of course, to Dylan's, um, Uh, Murder Most File, but what else should people be reading in these strange times in addition to your work?
1: Something calming, something zen, meditative, something that.
0: (laughs) No one's going to be calm after this, Colette. You just said everything's (laughs) broken.
1: Well, if you read my book to the very end, you'll see how some of the pieces are put back together.
0: Oh, good. Uh,
1: uh, And and the way that it's important, the kind of. So, everybody reading. If you skip the early stuff, read through to the end because that's where it lands on the ground. And who there.
0: else can we read to calm ourselves down?
1: Uh, you know, I'm going to be contrarian here. I think we need to rile ourselves up.
0: You just said I we didn't... need to calm ourselves down.
1: Well, uh, now I'm changing my mind and I'm... Permitted to do that. Good, you I, are.
0: You're allowed to do anything you like on my show, Collette. Yes, thanks So, I how are we going to rile would... people up? What books?
1: uh Well, Don DeLillo—that'll give you something. Oh
0: yes, about. excellent. Which ones? White uh, noise.
1: Well, again, White Noise—I think is really interesting. But uh even Mao, Mount, you know, the, it, anything that has to do with the mass mentality, with all of the—Yeah,
0: the Mao things. book is, is beautiful. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. call it wonderful. It's chillingly, chillingly wonderful.
1: Yes, Prescient,
0: I mean, as they say in the book business.
1: We need to be chilled, I think, a little bit.
0: Anything else except Delilah? Uh
1: Well, you know, I have to give a shout out to my uh, uh, colleague, Jennifer Egan, who's writing Ooh. an interesting book that is uh, Candy House. It's coming out, I guess it's coming out now and it's yeah, a you secret. did a show
0: with her um yes, in new york yes. and it was on lit hub i saw that it was very good yeah and so egan's uh, egan's new book any any uh any tips about what it's about can you reveal the secret
1: it, it takes the minor characters in uh the goon squad book and foregrounds them Oh, so it's a kind of a sequel or a sibling to that, I guess you would. I know, know. you've
0: known, bro. Uh, I know you've known Jennifer Egan for for a long time. Do you, do you think your work and her work, nonfiction and fiction, kind of go together?
1: Well, she has said to me that she read this book and she said there were uncanny resonances with the book I'm publishing in April. Uh, so we definitely have some of the same concerns, which surprised me. When I met her, we were... Uh, way, way, way back in the old days at Yaddo. And she was just starting a novel and I was writing journal literary essays all on my website, Colash, Colette Dash. You
0: were at a creative writing event. You you bumped into Egan, right?
1: We went to Yaddo. We were at the writers, the artist colony. Uh, okay. And we had... Uh, well,
0: uh, you'll have to uh, introduce me to, to uh, Egan. I'd love to get her on the show. Colette Brooks, real honor. Really fun to talk to you. Uh, your new book, Trapped in the Present Tense, Meditations on American Memory, is just out. It's a really uh, meaningful read, a memorable read. It's it's a book about forgetting, but it's hard to forget once it's been written, once it's been read. So congratulations, Colette, on that. Really honor and fun to talk to you. And you. Uh, maybe we'll get you on the show with uh, Egan and we can talk more broadly about fiction and nonfiction. Thank you so much.
1: That would be wonderful. Thank you, Andrew.